From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, very glad to have you along on Open Line Thursday here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Jack Williams away today. I'm Tom Price along with our Thursday host, Father Brian Mullady. How are you today, Padre? Just fine, thank you. Very glad to uh, have you. You're, you're back in your home digs, right? Right. After a wonderful vacation, yes. But it's kind of nice to be back home too, right? Yes. Well, good, good. So we've got a great topic, and we've got some great callers today, and you could be one of them. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code and then 205-271-2985. If you would like to send us an email, here's the address, openline at EWTN.com. Openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put Thursday in the subject line or Father Brian in the subject line, some way that we can make sure that the right email goes to the right host. And today, a very important topic today, Father, and that is St. Augustine. Yes, whose feast day we're going to celebrate soon. Mm -hmm. St. Augustine is very important in my life because when I was a student in Berkeley, Berserkly, that's Berkeley to you, (laughs) In the late 60s, I was very, very liberal, more than anybody else in my order, because I was reacting against being told I couldn't think in my novitiate. Mm. And um, I was spouting all this crap, and uh, it was 1968, the famous year. Oh, boy. And um, I uh, was not happy, let's put it that way. So one of the things I did was a big liberalization in those days was to take off your habit rosary. Hmm. Well, I thought, well, gee, maybe I need more devotion to Mary. So I put my habit rosary back on. And I had the fortune around the same time to take a class in uh, up at the seminary, Protestant seminary, from a Protestant, from an Anglican named Dr. Massey Shepherd, who was a high church Anglican in St. Augustine. And it consisted of reading the City of God from cover to cover. Hmm. And my experience reading St. Augustine was very much like Edith Stein reading The Life of St. Teresa. Uh, I closed the book and I said, you know, this is the truth. And all this stuff I've been spotting is a bunch of nonsense. Hmm. And so I always call him the savior of my faith because he led me back to St. Thomas because they were very much connected to each other. And so I've always had a great devotion to St. Augustine. And his life is fascinating, you know, because he was born in North Africa, Roman North Africa, around 354, I think, of a Christian mother who was very devout and a pagan father. And he was never baptized exactly. So at a certain point along the line, for, he was a very intellectual person from studies and things like that he began to become intellectually convinced of Christianity, but he still couldn't convert. And there was a famous incident in this book he wrote 
which is probably the original oldest book of personal reflection in the history of the world, the Confessions, where he says he was weeping because he couldn't convert. And so he heard this little voice in the garden saying, take up and read, take up and read. Tolle et lege, tolle et lege. He was about 35 years old at the time. So he picked up the Bible and he read St. Paul. And St. Paul says, you know, put off the old man, the new man. And he converted at that moment. And he also attributed the fact that he converted to the prayers of his mother. Because St. Monica, her whole life was to get him to become a Christian. Mm. Well, he became not only a Christian, but a bishop and a very great intellectual. He was called the Doctor of Grace. And he was also a professor of rhetoric. And he used a lot of his speaking talents in um, writing, writing and speaking numerous sermons and things that today are masterpieces. And he had a very interesting style where uh, many people quote St. Augustine because his, his style was so wonderful. So one example is, uh, he who created you without you will not redeem you without you. Mm. To emphasize our personal participation in our redemption. And his whole life was oriented because of the city of God and what he wrote there to seeing heaven as our true home. The uh, Roman Empire was under great siege at the time, and in 410, as he died in 430, Rome was sacked by the Visigoths, mm-hmm. and it was like the Washington D.C. had been destroyed by a nuclear attack. And Saint Jerome, who was a Roman, was in anguish. It said the whole world is all coming to an end, and the people accused Christianity of being the reason that Rome became less militaristic and saint augustus said look rome had a lot of good things about it but it was society basically based on slavery and paganism and god worship so why are you surprised that it came to an end and he's the source of the two cities the city of man and the city of god and he's also remember the famous quote our hearts are restless until they rest in thee emphasizing the fact that knowing God is why we're here and his final vision. And I am very fond of a quote of his that is quoted by Thomas Aquinas, where in the Summa he asks St. Thomas, if those who see God know all things in God. And in a reply to an objection, he quotes the Confessions of St. Augustine. And the quote's very beautiful in Latin, but in English it reads something like, unhappy is the one who does not know you, God, even if he knows everything else. Mm. Happy is the one who knows you, even if he knows nothing else. And the one who knows you and all the other things isn't any happier for knowing all the other things than he would be for knowing you alone. And this is carried out in his own life because as he was dying in Hippo, his sea was in North Africa. Mm-hmm. The city was being besieged by these terrible barbarians, the Vandals, who eventually destroyed the city. But while he was dying, he lay there listening to the siege, and he had painted on the walls around him verses from all the Psalms so he could recite them. 
So he's known as one of the great Western doctors. Even the Eastern Church celebrates him. And I have always loved St. Augustine after this. And I wanted to spread a little bit today of why to some of our listening audience. And I'm so glad that you did. And I find it personally fascinating, Father, that here we are 1,700 years later, give or take a little, and we're still quoting St. Augustine, and we're still saying our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, because it resonates with us, doesn't it? It, it does, and I, interestingly enough, as you know, and they would had a wrong interpretation in some ways, but Luther and Calvin, Augustine was one of their big authorities. So they accepted many of his teachings, but I think they misinterpreted some of them. Yeah, yeah. But still, I mean, you could see his influence on the history of Christian thought. Yes, indeed. Well, St. Augustine, pray for us. We're going to go to the phones in a moment here, and calls are coming in right now. You can be one of them by going to 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Quick question here, uh, Father, before we go to break. This is from Hong. I lost my mother, and I'm very sad. Why do people have to die in order to be with God? Well, because this way of life that we're in now in this world mm -hmm. is based on matter because we have bodies. And so we can only go so far in our knowledge of God in this world. The ultimate knowledge of God in this world is faith. Mm -hmm. but remember, faith, according to St. Paul, is the substance of things unseen, the essence of things to be hoped for, and we want to see the truth now. And I, I know you're very sad, and that's a good thing. In fact, with St. Augustine, whom I was talking about, some of the Christians said, well, if you believe in the resurrection of the dead, you shouldn't weep for the dead. And St. Augustine said, no, this is, this is stupid. He says, it's true, we believe in the resurrection of the dead, but we love that person and we, we don't see that person right mm, now. Yeah. We may have a spiritual relationship with them, but we don't really see them in the way of this world anymore, mm -hmm. and we miss them. And that's a, a holy and wholesome thing to weep for the dead. Yes, indeed. Well, Hong, thank you so much, and we're very sorry for your loss. Uh, in a moment, yes. we're going to be talking with Cecil in Southern California. Also, Bill in Providence, Rhode Island. And there's a line open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, we're glad you're with us for Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. Give me that phone number one more time here, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. You know, with news from EWTN's Vatican Bureau, you can watch all the important events from Rome 
even if you don't have TV access. Using the latest technology, we have made it possible to watch the latest news from the Holy See. It's all delivered to your home via live streams. Check out uh, EWTN's Vatican Bureau updates live on EWTN YouTube and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Cecil in Southern California, listening online, EWTN.com. Hello, Cecil. What's on your mind today, sir? Yes. Hello. Yes. My quick question. So uh, in John 8, verse 41, Jesus is, some people would interpret this mean that Jesus was accused of being born of fornication, though that's not necessarily uh, the situation, because they, I think they were more asserting that they, were, they came from God and were not uh, spiritually uh, uh, idolaters or fornicators. So that's what I think. So I, I use that as a preface, because my question is, uh, and I understand in Jewish marriage there were two phases, the engagement phase, which would be highly irregular if you broke it off, and the actual marital phase. Now, my understanding is is that you, the marriage wasn't consummated until you got to the second phase. However, if indeed there was a violation, and let's say that the, uh, and, and let's say, for example, Joseph and Our Lady, if technically, I mean, in the minds of other people, obviously God had his plans. I'm not saying anything about that. <laughs> but in the minds of other people, if Joseph, if Mary was uh, impregnated, and they were assuming it was from Joseph and not by the Holy Spirit, would that have been considered a serious sin on the level of, let's say, even stoning? Or would it be less considered, would it be considered a sin in Jewish culture of that day, though maybe not as serious a sin as, let's say, adultery and so forth? That's my question. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm not aware of how the ancient Israelites thought about that particular problem. <laughs> but the uh, you, you have it more or less right about the Jewish marriages customs at that time. Mm -hmm. The betrothal was considered to be, they were considered to be married, but the woman remained at her home, and the man went to prepare a place for them to cohabit. And that could be build it himself, that could be buy it, that could, it, could take, it could take several months. Mm -hmm. And then the wedding itself was the man going to the woman's home to fetch her in the bridal procession and bring her to her new home. That's why I remember in the parables, the bridesmaids go there, uh, but, uh, but they don't bring enough oil for their lamps. Yes. And then the bridegroom arrives and they're not ready, so uh, they're kind of um, rejected. So... Uh, I assume that it would be obvious that if a person became pregnant when they were still living at their home, that the husband had transgressed against this or someone had at some point along the line because they didn't really cohabit at all. Now, I don't really know what the law would be about that myself, but if it was adultery, of course, then of course it would have to do with being stoned. Now, the problem for us as, as Christians is that Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit in that time mm -hmm. between the actual betrothal and, and the cohabitation of the wedding ceremony. 
And Joseph discovered this. Unfortunately, the translation of this passage is very poor, which says he wanted to divorce her quietly, because this is simply an impossible translation. Nazareth could not have been very big. What is it like? We've been, what, several hundred people? Mm, okay. Everybody goes to the same synagogue. Everybody washes their, uh, washes their clothes in the same stream or well. <laughs> to try to do anything quietly yeah. in a situation like that is impossible. Sure. So there's a new translation that was made about this by Dr. John Sayward that will also support the Greek text, where he says, um, not willing to reveal her mystery. Mm. he decided to withdraw from her quietly. Now, wow. what that means is, and this is the interpretation the Catholic Church has always given of this, and it was canonized by the Council of Trent, more or less, is that Joseph's reaction to finding Mary pregnant was much like Moses at the burning bush. And, you know, there's an example of this reaction just prior to this where Mary brings the child to Elizabeth's house and the two children leap in the womb. And Elizabeth says, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to live? And that was Joseph's reaction. Who am I? What's my place in this mystery? I'm just a weak, fallible human being. But he never had any doubts that this child was divinely conceived. And then, of course, remember, the angel appears to him, because that's the way the Jews receive revelations. Mm -hmm. And the angel appears to him in a dream because Joseph's a working man and tired. And he basically, what he says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Not because he thinks she's guilty of adultery, but because he doesn't want to be consumed by the all-powerful nature of the mystery. And then it's because of, by the Holy Spirit that she has conceived this child. So in your place is to be guardian of the Redeemer and guardian of the mystery. And then Joseph feels free to do that. But the the whole idea that Joseph could have possibly been the father or that it's someone else could have been is completely foreign to the interpretation of the, the text and Scripture and the faith of the Church. All right. And thanks, to, uh, thanks so much for your call, Cecil. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986, Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN Radio. Father, we got a very interesting question here from Martin via uh, via uh, email. Martin says, my wife and I use birth control. It was prescribed by a doctor to help with my wife's cycle and uh, discomfort. We have had discussions about her getting off, but she doesn't want to go through the discomfort and pain. Due to this fact and what is happening in the world today, we have not been um, intimate in a long time. I don't want to sin. I feel that God will punish us. I fear that my wife and I are losing our closeness, and I feel very guilty. I don't know what to do. Do you have any advice for us? And again, Father, that's from Martin. So, as I understand the question, mm -hmm. uh, it's the actual act of intercourse that causes her pain. Well, I don't think so, though, because they're using birth control, so they must do the act. So why can't they use natural family planning, number one, uh, where conception is, is as rare as it is under, under birth control? Right. Number two, uh, I don't know if you remember the famous actor who played Khan 
in Star Trek. Ricardo oh, yeah. Montalban. Ricardo Maltaban, yeah. Yeah. Well, his wife was told at one point along the line, he was married to Loretta Young's sister, that he, t- he relates this in a book he wrote, that he, he reflected it when he made a retreat at a Jesuit retreat house, because apparently he used to go every year. He's very devout. And um, the doctor said she couldn't conceive without some threats being made to her health and perhaps to her life. So his wife prayed about it, and he prayed about it, and they decide to observe the church's teaching on um, controlling themselves uh-huh. according to the cycle, you know, in the woman's body. Mm-hmm. And he said the strange thing is that when you abstain uh, by by will, in other words, uh, you will to uh-huh. um, limit this to certain times. And first of all, your communication increases. Because at least you have to talk to your wife about whether she, she's having the period or yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. And that increases communication. But secondly, he said every time we did choose to have intercourse, it was like a second honeymoon. Wow. Because we'd abstained for so sure, long. Sure, sure. So uh, it, it, uh, the way I get the question, I may be wrong about this, but she can have intercourse without pain. It's the doctor telling her she shouldn't conceive. And uh, that is, I would say, uh, as a result, they, sh- they can certainly practice intercourse, provided they observe the church's teaching on the cycles. Why is that different? Well, first of all, it's God himself who's placed the infertility in the woman during a certain part of her, uh, you know, the periods right. and cycles. And so you're cooperating with God, you're cooperating with nature, not trying to deny it. And also, doctors are, I don't know about your experience of them, we have to have them, we can't live without them, but they're not always right about what they say, Mm -hmm. and sometimes not even what they do. Uh, I remember I knew a nun, she was a a surgical nurse in a Catholic hospital, Uh And this would be like in the 30s and 40s. And I, when I knew her, she was like 85 years old. And she says, oh, Father, you should have been here during those surgeries, especially what they had to do with birth. I always had to say, you get your hands off those tubes, doctor. There'll be no tube tying in this hospital. <laughs> because, you know, doctors, if they felt a woman had too many children, they wouldn't even ask permission from wow. them. Wow, wow. They'd just do it while they were in there. They'd tie the tubes. Ooh. So, you know, I mean, you can't always go totally by what the doctor says when it comes to issues like this, especially if they're not Catholic and they don't understand natural family planning that well. Yeah, and and my understanding of natural family planning, here we are in 2022, it's pretty sophisticated at this point. It is not, uh, you know, what you would have heard in the 60s or the 50s. Uh, It's actually quite scientific. Well, in the 70s, they had these two schools of, of course, the typical conservative Catholics, they were fighting about who's, who was right. But they had eventually, if you took both schools together, they had three criteria. One was the temperature of the woman. Mm-hmm. The other was the opening of the cervix. And the third was the bu- mucus taken from the cervix, whether it was opaque or clear. And if you use all three of those things, which was really common sense, instead of fighting about that one was better than the other, 
it was pretty possible to predict the period. Now, I know that some women say they have very irregular periods, and I don't doubt that, but most people don't, and so their period's pretty regular. So uh, this this whole thing is a red herring against chastity, really. Yeah, yeah. Martin, you may want to check uh, with... Uh, there are many... Many experts right. out there on natural fanning planning. Uh, you can go to uh, a number of sources. We can we can give you those. Right. Anyway, uh, thanks so much for your email. In a moment, we'll talk yes. with Frank in Parkersburg, West Virginia. Also, Larry in Kansas City. Lines are open for you on Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. Stay with us. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Still a line open for you here on Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady, and that number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We're going to give kind of a P.S. before we go on to our next caller. I was going to give this out, uh, but then here comes the music, so we had to duck out at the break. But uh, the Couple to Couple League is uh, all over the United States. They have offices all over the place. I think the closest one to, to us here in Birmingham is Atlanta, but they really are all over. Uh, an additional resource for Martin and his wife would be uh, the pro-life office in just about every diocese. Uh, there's always going to be somebody there that can answer those questions. So thanks again for your uh, email, uh, Martin. We do appreciate hearing from you. Let's go now to Frank in Parkersburg, West Virginia, listening on St. Paul Radio. Hello, Frank. What's on your mind today? Uh, yes. Uh, my my, my uh, question was, uh, why did our Creator give us physical, biological bodies? Okay. Well, because we're not angels and we're not just animals, uh, because we occupy a middle ground in the creation. And as you know, uh, all the lower orders, now I, it's kind of a, a global statement, but all the material orders, like the plants and the animals and the atoms and the molecules and all this business, they all come forth in diversity from God, and each one reflects them in some way. And they, by their actions, all seek to return to unity. Diversity seeks to return to unity. Uh, so, for example, when the plant takes uh, sunlight and nutrients in the soil and water and unifies it to make a cell, you know, cellular tissue, they're seeking the unity, which would be God in their own small way. Of course, they have to destroy the other things in order to unite them. And then when you go to the level of the animals, the animal in sight, for example, which they share with us in eyes, many of them, that they unify all these impressions without destroying the thing. But because we have uh, God is spiritual, the source of our creation is spiritual, in order for these material orders to finally realize themselves fully, they can only do that through a being which is both material and spiritual at the same time, because that being participates in the lower orders, but can also experience union with the higher orders, and that can only be man. So there's a beautiful quotation in one of the uh, pagan authors that was used greatly in the Middle Ages by Christian authors from about the fifth century, and it was, uh, man stands in the middle of creation between flesh and spirit, between time and eternity, on the horizon of being. So that's why St. Paul says, 
our whole body are waiting to be set free, uh, but they can only be set free when they're redeemed, and the, the body's redeemed, and that can only be when through grace, which we lost, we were creating grace, so all these things could fit together. But we lost, we interrupted the order of creation. Mm -hmm. And now when we get grace back, all these things that begin in the simplest material, smallest matter, can finally be experienced and transfigured in the highest spiritual being, which would be God, when human beings through grace are unable to go to heaven. All right, there you go, Frank. We hope that's helpful for you. Thanks so much for your call from Parkersburg. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. Two lines open at the moment, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here's Larry now in Kansas City. He's on the Missouri side, listening on the great Catholic radio network. Larry, what's on your mind today? Okay, uh, thanks for the opportunity. Um, my question is, uh, when Zachary... Uh, John the Baptist's father was mute, and they asked him what his son's name was to be, and he you know, indicated John, and then suddenly he could talk. And they said that news of this uh, spread throughout. This was so shocking, uh, and it spread throughout all of Jerusalem. My question is, when Jesus, I guess, went to get circumcised in the temple— and Anna, who lived in the temple maybe for years, came up and indicated that he was maybe the Messiah. And Simeon does something similar. The rabbi who was performing uh, that uh, that procedure, uh, why did the rabbi certainly grasp this? Why did that not cause a stir? And if it did, why was this not reported? Uh, why is this not mentioned? It just, and it seems to me, Simeon and Anna would both want people to know this, everybody. So, I, and I have a similar question uh, relating to, like, when the shepherds, uh, the angels appeared to the shepherds, and they went to where Jesus was born, why people you know, such an amazing thing, they would want to track Jesus. So my first question was the more important of the two. That's it. Okay. Well, I'm really sorry, but I can't tell you why things didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when it's just 2,000 years ago, and the only evidence we have is what's written in the Scripture. Uh, believe me, if the Gospel writers thought that was an important issue, they would have mentioned it, and they didn't. Uh, the only thing I can say to you is that um, faith in Christ is essential. And the experience of the shepherds is they represent the revelation of the Messiah coming into the world of the Jews. That's why the angels proclaim his coming to them. And with the regard to the Gentiles, the same thing is through the Magi who experience it through nature because Philosophers examine nature. Uh, as to Zechariah, remember that was a family affair. And all around the, the time that Christ lived, there were all these rumors about the Messiah's coming and the Essenes had this eschatology, the great war of the, you know, the good against evil and all this business. There were all kinds of apocryphal books that we don't, only some of which have come down to us 
that where the people were sort of looking like for the end of the world and for the coming of the Messiah. And John, as you know, is considered to be the liar that proclaims the coming of the Lord. And uh, so John the Baptist's birth was emphasized in that. With regard to Simeon and Anna, they represent the people of the Old Testament and the whole human race, really, who've been longing and waiting and waiting and waiting. And now, through faith, again, they receive faith, and they see the person they've been longing for before them. And you have that wonderful uh, canonical of Simeon, where he's said to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. See, that's related to the Magi's searching. And the glory of your people Israel, that's related to the shepherds searching, the holy Shekinah. That's what the glory of the Lord is. Why the rabbi doing the thing didn't believe, I really don't know. But you remember that the people closest to Christ were the ones that did not believe. Remember when he came back to Nazareth, yeah. <laughs> that was very bad. Yes, it was. When he identified himself as the Messiah finally. Remember what they did? They wanted to kill him, take him to the brow of a hill and throw him off. Yep. And these are the people who grew up with because they didn't have faith. Mm -hmm. So faith is, is necessary to recognize these things. There you go. And uh, thanks so much for your call, Larry. It is Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. We do have a couple lines open. If you call right now, we can probably get you on today's show. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Father, we got uh, an email from Jenny, who is a catechist, and apparently this regards a confirmation. Jenny says, as a catechist, can I suggest to the priest uh, perhaps he should not confirm a youth because I don't believe he's ready? Of course you can. In fact, you have a moral obligation to do that. Now, whether the priest wants to listen, that's mm. another issue. Yeah, yeah. But you have a moral obligation to express, well, I would say, it's presumed that the people are ready yeah. uh, by the fact that you taught them. But if you know someone who's just in it for the party or something, mm -hmm. and, and you know, unfortunately, confirmations have been moved to the teenage years where before they were like in the eighth grade because they become a lot like Jewish bar mitzvahs now. A lot of them go through bar mitzvah, but they do it just for the party. Mm. And... Uh, they they need to have some awareness that they're receiving a sacrament and that yeah. it has certain obligations connected to it. Yeah. And it doesn't work like magic. Now, again, you absolved yourself of your responsibility mm -hmm. if you bring that to the attention of the priest. And then he'll have to make his own choice as to what to do. Ideally, the priest should be involved in all religious education regarding sacraments. They don't necessarily have to do it totally but they have to at least be aware of what's happening and perhaps give a lesson. Yeah. And, sure. I mean, so they will know, but many priests don't know, mm -hmm. even the people they're receiving an RCIA. They may have had an interview with them, but that's it. Which, when you consider, in the old times, see, before RCIA, when I was a young priest, you had a convert class, and the priest taught it. And so he knew pretty much from that class who was ready and who wasn't. Mm, sure. Oh, very good. And Jenny, thank you so much uh, for your email. 
Uh, it's uh, Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Malady here on EWTN. Coming up tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Eastern, it is More to Life with Dr. Greg and Lisa Popcheck. Tomorrow they're talking, talking about the heart of the matter. Are you struggling to forgive? Are you struggling to be forgiven? Uh, Dr. Greg and Lisa will start you on the road towards healing. That sounds great. Check it out tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Eastern. More to life right here on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to Joe, a first-time caller driving through Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. Hello, Joe. What's on your mind today, sir? Hello, good afternoon, gentlemen. Howdy. Um, well, and I've been to church for quite a while, and uh, I just read the numerous references in the Bible to Jesus' brothers and sisters. And uh, there's not just one, there's, there's several. And uh, yes. I've never really heard the uh, official uh, Catholic position on that, because when I read that, I'm like, I can see it, that's what it says. But my understanding is that the Church's position that they're not actual half-brothers and sisters. And uh, I was just kind of wondering how, you know, this position that's important. That's a big deal, you know, that's very, very important. Yes. Okay. Yes. I just heard a sermon by a Hispanic Protestant preacher that I respect a lot as a person, but he was talking about this too, and he felt there was Mary wasn't always a virgin, see. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, first of all, I really get perturbed by people who, not you, but I mean in general, who want to make judgments about doctrine based on the English translation of the Bible. Because, as you know, the Bible was not written in English. Yeah. <laughs> so in order to make doctrinal decisions, you need to know the original language, for one thing, <laughs> and what the words meant, like brother and sister in Greek. But then it's a, if it's reflecting a Hebrew term, you really need to know what the Hebrew uh, or Aramaic equivalent of that is. Now, when it comes to the issue of Jesus' brothers and sisters... You judge something in Scripture, terms in Scripture, like family terms, by how they're used in the rest of the Bible. In the Old Testament, Abraham and I believe Lot are described as being brothers. Well, they weren't in the same family. They were cousins. So, And there are many examples of that in the Old Testament in Jewish culture of the term brother or sister being used for the extended family. So since the Christian tradition has always been that Mary wasn't just a virgin in her conception of Christ, but that she always remained a virgin, Joseph respected her virginity, and God called it a virginity, and that's from the earliest times. Um, and it was a heresy to maintain, for example, that Joseph was the father of Jesus uh, physically. Um, it's obvious that the use of that term in the New Testament is the same as it is in the Old Testament yeah. regarding Jewish family life, which means it's the extended family. Okay. Appreciate that, Joe. Thanks so much for your call. Glad that you're checking in, listening on Covenant Radio. Great partner of ours for many, many years. Uh, Dana has an email question here, Father. Uh, Dana says, can you help me to defend the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist? Oh, well, my goodness. You know, the bishops are having a whole a catechetical preaching mission. Yes. There's like 70 preachers. I'm one of them. They're supposed to go around the country to defend this and bring it out. Beautiful. Uh, look, what I will tell you is this. Um, the real presence of Christ only became questioned in the Protestant Reformation, really, 
And part of that was due to an attempt to undermine the sacrificial character of the Mass because Luther basically had a lot of trouble with physical mediation. So he liked the soul to go directly to God, but he also didn't like logic because he thought philosophy was the tool of the devil. Mm. So he didn't feel called upon to be too logical. <laughs> so his big attack was on sacramentalism, but because he could find two in Scripture and he was tied to them, he held there were two sacraments, the baptism and the Eucharist. Mm. Now, we don't believe the Protestant Eucharist is valid, though we believe their baptism is. But we do believe they have two sacraments. And the second sacrament would be marriage, because if their baptism is valid, two baptized parties, you know, make the commitment of marriage, that's, a, in our point of view, a sacrament, if they don't look on it that way. With regard to the real presence, even Luther was involved in a discussion with another famous reformer, Zwingli, who held out for a symbolic presence. And supposedly Luther went up to the blackboard or whatever it was and wrote, Hoc est! Est enum corpus meo. <laughs> this is my body. Now, he didn't really accept transubstantiation, but he did accept the fact that what our Lord was doing there was making himself truly present in the celebration of the Eucharist, that it wasn't just a symbolic act. Now, the Catholic Church's tradition is highly developed from the Middle Ages on theologically. And you can find this in Thomas Aquinas' Summa, where he has 40 questions on the nature of Christ's presence of the Eucharist. And the idea is that so that we might experience a spiritual interior union with God through Christ's human nature, that Jesus gave us this gift at the Last Supper, where... Uh, where he, the priest says the words of institution over the host. That's the host means victim, you know. That's mm -hmm. what the word means, uh, the, the Eucharistic bread. In everything, it ceases to be bread except its appearances, and that includes its molecular structure. Mm. So it's completely changed to being the body of Christ as it exists in heaven, but without the appearances of the body of Christ as exists in heaven. And God gave us this gift to spiritually nourish us in our journey to him. And the same is true of the precious blood, you know, uh, to be consecrated. So, uh, I mean, you could have, a, I've had whole semester courses on the nature of the real presence. Mm. What we mean by real presence, and Paul VI actually said this when in the late 60s they were debating it, he says, real presence doesn't mean that there's not a real presence of God in the nature or in your neighbor, but that's real presence with a small r and a small p. When this term is used regarding the Eucharist, it means presence par excellence, and it means that Christ is substantially present in the Eucharist, so the Eucharist is God. And I, uh, you know, I've had heard priests, even in my own order, who said, well, we're celebrating Corpus Christi, we're really celebrating us, because Christ is really present in us. And I remember somebody told me that, and I said, oh, 
You know, oh, is that what he said? Well, the next time I go to that parish, I'm going to genuinely flock before him. <laughs> no, it's not the same. No, it's no. it's real in the sense that uh, God is in my neighbor through grace, or because my neighbor is made in His image and likeness. But in this case, in the Eucharist, it's real because it is the same body that exists in heaven, made present here on earth. So the way I always like to put it is. There aren't 10 million bodies of Christ all over the world in all the tabernacles. There's one body of Christ that exists in heaven who's sacramentally present in 10 million different places. Mm. So that when we experience the Eucharist, we're worshiping with the same worship, and the Catechism makes this clear, as described in the Book of Revelation of the saints and the angels in the famous uh, vision of the uh, you know, adoration of the mm-hmm. God through the Lamb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Dana, for your question, and we hope that is helpful for you. Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. Tom sent us an email, Father. Tom says, At work, I was approached by someone who does not believe in free will. I don't think I did a very good job explaining free will to this person. Could you please help me with an explanation? Well, I mean, did you ask them if when they had breakfast in the morning, if they only had to eat one thing? <laughs> I mean, and suppose they want to eat cereal. Don't they have a choice between, what, granola and uh, Cocoa Puffs? <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously free, we exercise free will all day long every day. If you mean grace and free will, well, this is very easy to answer because God does not want slaves and that would be the case if he replaced our will with his so that we'd be automatons that had no thoughts and no no freedom and no will and no love as a result Mm. god wants sons daughters and heirs and so he chooses because we have an intellect and will to share with us the ability to freely choose that and of course that gives us also the ability to freely choose evil. But he didn't create Adam and Eve with the free will to choose evil. He created it so that they might choose heaven and divine love. All right. And uh, Tom, I hope that's helpful for you uh, regarding free will. And here's a question now from Barry, Father. Barry says, what is the ground of the moral law? Is it God or reason itself? Uh, Okay, this is the Catholic option. Okay. In Catholicism, we don't believe in either or. <laughs> mm. It's not either faith or reason or either, um, let's see, it's either Christ's presence or, or not Christ's presence, uh, the accidents and the substance, and, or either scripture or tradition. Mm-hmm. It's both and. Yes. And in our theological explanations, we have to try to explain how this can possibly be the case. So when it comes to the law, well, the primary law, remember, according to the catechism, which is just reflected in the Summa of St. Thomas, there are four kinds of law. The first is divine law, which is in the presence of the mind of the creator when he makes the whole universe. The second is our participation in the divine law, which is for reason, And this is um, the natural law. 
The third is where God reveals his law to us. Mm -hmm. In many cases, it's the same as the natural law, but human beings are pretty obtuse when it comes to law. So much so that in the ancient world, they used to worship lawgivers as gods because it was so hard to make good laws, right? And there are very few law codes, as you know. The Code of Hammurabi is the oldest one in the West. And then you have the Code of Justinian, and you have the Napoleonic Code. But, I mean, codification of laws is a very hard thing to do. Uh, And so, in this case, God helps us to know what our nature is and to act above it, which is divine law, faith. And then, finally, you have human law, which is what we make in our country, or our city, and that has to reflect reason, natural law. Mm-hmm. It can't contradict it, and by um, implication, it can't contradict the divine law. And if someone tries to make a law which contradicts reason and reveal law, they're contradicting the divine law present in God's mind too, and therefore such a thing isn't a law, it's a usurpation of law. All right, very good. It's and, tyranny. Okay, all right. And one final question here from Linda. Can you clarify the Catholic view of the difference between gender and sex? <laughs> well, I'm not quite, I don't quite know why, what the question's asking. Yeah, I'm not sure because either. Because you can't have sex if you don't have two genders. Right. <laughs> and the reason God created two genders was precisely to have sex. Uh, I, and, and, of course, that's precisely to have children. What I will tell you is this. In the Catholic position, once through contraception, children became divorced from the sexual act. Mm-hmm. Then the issue of gender became moot. So if you don't have to have a child when you have sex, why not have homosexuality? Why not have transsexualism? Because obviously a child can't result from any of that. And contraception is what caused that, and it began with the French Revolution 200 years ago. Wow. Well, there you go. Linda, thanks so much for your call. And, uh, Father, if you could leave us with your blessing, please. May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be sent upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Father, we hope you have a great weekend. You too. Thank you so much. We hope everybody has a great weekend. And tomorrow at this same time, it's going to be uh, Colin Donovan handling things here for us on Open Line Friday with all of your theological questions. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price, along with Father Brian Brian Milady. See you next time here on Open Line. God bless. God bless.